All right, Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome to South Florida Lay Catholic Radio. It's good to be with you today, Dennis. Okay, Dr. Hahn, I can tell you many, many people were looking forward to this interview. So uh, I know you're a very prolific author, and uh, out of all the works that you've either got out or, or are coming out, I chose a couple to ask you to comment on. Sure. The first one is titled Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time, and it's your newest book, and it's uh, published by Emmaus Road, and it's basically nine essays, and I picked a few of them here that I'd ask you to just give us a brief overview of without uh, you know, giving away the whole story so that no one buys the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one has to do with the connection of Scripture, liturgy, and the Church. Well, yeah. In this article, what I'm trying to point out is something that any uh, honest historian would acknowledge, and that is that the Bible is not just a religious book, it's a liturgical book. The 73 books that make up the Bible were canonized or officially collected in the 4th century by bishops because these were the books that were being read in every Mass. For centuries since the founding of the church by Jesus. And so when you have the Bible canonized with an official table of contents that was added by these Catholic bishops meeting in the 390s, what we discover is that the Bible was really put together for the church in the liturgy. And that isn't just true historically. It's also true when you open up the Bible and you begin to read it. The Bible is all about the liturgy. You read, for example, how God created the world. It's through the power of his word. He spoke, let there be light, and suddenly there's light out of darkness. Let there be this, let there be that. Everything that came into existence came as a result of the power of God's word. Well, what do we as God's people experience every time we gather? The liturgy of the word. We hear the word of the Lord, and it is powerful. And so when you continue on in Genesis, you discover that God, who could have created the world in one split second or taken billions of years and described it in those terms, instead chooses to give us an inspired record of how the world is made in six days, just in time to consecrate it on the seventh day. Every ancient Jewish reader immediately identified that the creation account is a liturgical narrative. Why? It climaxes with the Sabbath day that God consecrates. And so creation itself is described as a kind of liturgical act that consists of the divine word on the one hand and then the act of consecration on the other. Just like the Mass is divided up into the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament. And as you go through Genesis, you discover that in every chapter, practically speaking, it's about the liturgy. So not only is the Bible for the liturgy, but the Bible is about the liturgy. For example, the, uh, the description of Adam's tasks in Genesis 2, there in the garden, are the same terms that are used elsewhere to describe the tasks of Israel's high priest and the Levitical ministers. When you see Noah ordered to build the ark, he has to bring in a pair of all the animals, but then seven of the clean animals. What, what are clean animals? The animals that are offered in sacrifice for the liturgy that Noah celebrates as soon as he disembarked, he built an altar. When you move out of Genesis into Exodus, it's more of the same. The word in Hebrew for slavery is avodah. That's what Israel suffered under Egypt, and that's what they were delivered from. But when they got to Mount Sinai, having been set free from Avodah, slavery, the goal of this great exodus is itself described in terms of Avodah, liturgy. So when you offer it to Pharaoh, it's bondage, degradation, and slavery. When you offer it to God, Avodah is freedom. It is ministry. It is service. But it is the liturgy that establishes Israel as God's covenant family. And as you continue reading throughout 
the whole of the Bible, you discover that Western civilization is liturgically tone deaf. They don't hear it because they think that politics, economics, war, and all of that is really what's most real. And so what I point out in this book in general, and in the opening in particular, is just how much the Word of God is wrapped around worship and how much worship is really defined by the Word of God. And I think the more people experience reading the Bible in terms of worship, the more they're going to find that the liturgy is the Bible's natural habitat. In fact, it's the supernatural habitat. And this is something that the the doctors and the saints and the fathers of the Church have always affirmed. But for whatever reason, in the last century or so, it seems to have been forgotten by many. Okay, Dr. Hahn, another essay in your most recent release titled Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time, is um, Church Authority Within a Scriptural Context. Uh, What have you got on that one? Church authority within the the context there is, uh, I mean, what we have to recognize is that Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. And he goes on to say that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he goes on to elaborate how he's giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter so that whatever is bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. It's not that whatever you bind on earth will then be subsequently bound in heaven. It's that when Christ is raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father in the highest heaven, he is going to be the one who fulfills the promise. On this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, Peter, go build me a church. It's Christ's church. Christ is the builder. Peter and all the rest of us are just the tools. And when the church wields authority on earth, as Jesus told Peter, whatever you bind on earth, if you look at the Greek, it will have already been bound in heaven. So the earthly tail doesn't wag the heavenly dog. Christ is the high king in heaven. And through the Holy Spirit and by means of the sacraments, the church's authority is being exercised by Jesus Christ. Through the pope and the bishops and the priests and the deacons and all those who are responsible. But I think what we have to recognize is that the task of the church on earth is to really proclaim the word of the Lord, to release the power of the Spirit of God, and to allow the kingdom of heaven to manifest its life and truth on earth through the ministry that we all experience, that we all share. Okay, Doctor, another essay in your book titled Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time, is titled A Biblical Approach to the Pentecostal Phenomena. That's an interesting kind of uh, you know, topic there. What's that one about? Well, what we do in this essay is... is uh, we, we look at how it is that Pentecost, way back in the first century, before it ever became a Christian feast, was already a Jewish feast. Jews still celebrate Pentecost to this day. What is it that they celebrate? Well, certainly not the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles in Jerusalem, as we read about in Acts 2. But what they do celebrate is the giving of the law to Moses and all of Israel there at Mount Sinai. And so Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as the Jews call it, Shavuot, is a great celebration that brought pilgrims into Jerusalem from all over the dispersion, the diaspora. And so here is Peter and all of the others gathered together in prayer, waiting nine days as Jesus commanded them right before the ascension to celebrate what had been an old covenant feast, celebrating the old covenant law being given at Sinai. Only now, instead of the law of God being given in the old covenant, it is the Spirit of God 
that is given in the New Covenant. And what a difference it makes. You know, when the law of God was given to Moses to entrust to all of Israel, back in Exodus 20 and following, you have the will of God revealed, but not the power that we need to fulfill the commandments. And so what happens, Israel succumbs to idolatry. They end up worshiping the golden calf. Moses has to order the Levites to slaughter all of these idolaters. And how many perished? In Exodus 32, we read 3,000 perished that day. Well, when you go to the new covenant Pentecost in Acts 2, where we celebrate the, you know, here are Jewish Christians gathered together under Peter's leadership for the purpose of commemorating the giving of the old covenant law. But what they get from on high that day is the spirit of Christ, the new covenant law. And now it's not just the revealed will of God. Now it is the power that comes from God's spirit that we always needed in order to keep these commandments. It's one thing to know in your mind what to do. It's another thing to receive the power in your heart to will it and to accomplish it. That's the gift that is given in the New Covenant Pentecost. And so as you continue reading in Acts 2, what happens? Well, Peter gets up, filled with the Spirit, and proclaims the New Covenant that is fulfilling, not abolishing the old. And when the people hear it, thousands and thousands of people are there, and many of them respond, what must we do? Well, Peter says, repent, believe, be baptized. And how many people were baptized that day? How many people died and rose in the waters of New Covenant baptism, 3,000, the exact same number, that perished at the Old Covenant Pentecost at Sinai when the law was given without the power of God's Spirit. Now in the New Covenant we receive the Spirit, and as a result, 3,000 come to life that day. So the early church fathers really enjoyed showing how these parallels between the old and the new indicate the promises of God that had to be that had to wait for their fulfillment until the coming of Christ and the giving of the Spirit. And what I try to do in that essay, then, is just to draw some practical applications for the Church today, because we've really experienced a new Pentecost, too, as Pope John XXIII announced when he convened the, uh, when he convened the, the, the Second Vatican Council. And so I, I suggest some ways that we might see some applications today. Okay, Dr. Hahn, uh, the approach I was going to take on this uh, going over the books was that I would keep asking you questions about a given book sure. until I myself was ready to go buy it. So we're at that point right now on this book. <laughs> All right, so Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time, that's the most recent book by Dr. Scott Hahn, published by Emmaus Road. And our guest today, for those of you who are joining us late, is Dr. Scott, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. He's a 1986 convert to Catholicism, a prolific author, and a professor of theology and scripture at Franciscan University of Steubenville, the founder and director of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Now, Dr. Hahn, you got another book out right now titled Ignatius Study Bible, The Letters of John and Revelation, and uh, parenthetically it says, which completes the series of volumes of the New Testament. Now, uh, scholars have long debated whether this book, meaning the book of Revelation, is concerned mainly with a symbolic depiction of the struggle of good against evil, or whether it applies to specific events in history, meaning its own time, the general course of church history, or the end of the world. Well, Dr. Hahn, which is it? I would say all of the above. You know, in Protestantism, you have all these different sectarian divisions and denominational differences, and people splitting constantly. You know, they, 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 they now number uh, Protestant denominations as slightly over 30,000. 
They were all founded by sincere, well-meaning believers who were convinced that they were interpreting the Bible correctly. And the book of Revelation is probably the one that is most debated among Protestants and most responsible for fomenting these kinds of divisions. In the Catholic tradition, however, we don't generally say it's this and therefore it can't be that. What the fathers of the Church showed us is that there's a way to read the book of Revelation that is truly historical in the original context. So in the first century, you have the, uh, the description of God's judgment upon Jerusalem and the Old Covenant Temple, as well as Rome. And the holy city that comes in for judgment in Revelation 11, the city where the Lord was crucified, and you, know, you, you, you have the city where the Lord is crucified showing us that in the first century, Jerusalem was the first city to really get the gift of Christ and the gospel, and many people believed, but many more chose not to. And so Jesus' last discourse was to say, not one stone will be left upon another. This temple will come down, and this generation won't pass away before my words take place. And so within 40 years, which was one generation, by 70 A.D., God's judgment had come upon Jerusalem. Now, if God doesn't spare the holy city of the Old Covenant, Jerusalem, then Rome has been served notice, and every other city in human history as well. And so there is a way in Catholic tradition to understand that Rome is also targeted by God's judgment for shedding the blood of martyrs, as we know from Peter and Paul and many others as well. And so there's a proper way in which you can see the extension of this prophecy to include Rome. But it doesn't stop there, because the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome, as we read about in the book of Acts. The first two chapters of Acts 1 and 2, the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. The last two chapters in the book of Acts is when Paul is under house arrest in Rome, proclaiming the gospel, and even members of Caesar's household are believing. And so many people came to believe in Rome, and that was a result of, of Peter's proclamation, as well as Paul writing the letter to the Romans and many other efforts as well. But when, whenever a city or a, a nation receives the gospel, and many people accept it and others don't, you know, invariably you will come in for judgment. As we read about in the Old Testament for Israel, as we read in the Gospels for Jerusalem, and as we read in the Apocalypse, this judgment also includes Rome. But when you read Revelation 2 and 3, you realize that it isn't just Jerusalem and Rome being warned and being reminded of how God's judgment comes. The seven churches in Asia Minor are also told that if you don't repent, I, the Lord, will come and remove your lampstand. And so it was true in the first century. It was also true when it came to the judgment of God upon Rome in the subsequent years. It's also true for the Church and for every civilization that hears the Gospel and then begins to choose to disobey and to reject the truth of the Church. And so there's a way in which you can see past, present, and future fulfillment. And this is how the Church has always approached this book. But above all, the thing that you find in this commentary of ours is how much of the book of Revelation is about the liturgy. This is not something you'll hear from fundamentalists. But what you find in the book of Revelation is not the rapture. The term is never used once. Not the Antichrist. That term doesn't occur a single time. In terms like millennium, that occurs once near the end. Uh, the, uh, the Battle of Armageddon, that's only mentioned once near the very back of the book as well. And yet here are people building entire theories of how to interpret the book based on words that don't even occur, or words that only occur once near the back. But what you do find in the book of Revelation is the Lamb of God, as we, as we confess, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the term used to describe Jesus 28 times in 22 chapters. 
And along with the Lamb of God, you have the Amen, the Alleluia, the Holy, 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 the Gloria, the Benediction, the Benedictus. You have uh, so many liturgical acclamations, hymns, prayers. You have the liturgical furniture up in heaven described, the liturgical vestments worn by Christ, as well as the angels and the saints and the elders. You have liturgical instruments for the musical praise. On every single page of the Apocalypse, what you have is a description of the liturgy of the angels and saints in heaven and how it corresponds precisely to what the Church participates in on earth. In the Mass, every time we go to Mass, the power of heaven is released. The, 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 the message of the book of Revelation, as I explain in this Ignatius Catholic Study Bible commentary, is that, hey, we all want to go to heaven. We just don't want to die first. Well, if we can take God at his word, we can discover that we don't have to die to go to heaven. All we've got to do is go to Mass, and heaven is where we are. The angels and saints are who we're with. And according to the Apocalypse, our songs are theirs, our prayers are the same prayers that they're offering, and you will see that God is sending us grace and mercy and power in direct response to our liturgical songs, our prayers, and above all, the sacrifice of the Lamb. So the one thing that the book of Revelation about is about is not just reducible to the past or to the present or to the future. It's the one thing that the Church has always done and will do until the end of time, and that is the celebration of the New Covenant Passover, the Mass as we know it. And that's, in a nutshell, what this book is all about. Okay, so Dr. Hahn, uh, if I get done reading the Ignatius Study Bible, the letters of John and Revelation, <clears throat> does this mean that I will now understand the book of Revelation? I think it will help a lot. I would also recommend a book I wrote a few years ago called The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven and Earth, because that's where I just break it out. I show how the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Mass all correspond to the beginning and middle and end of the Apocalypse, and how likewise the Apocalypse is what you will find so frequently alluded to in the, uh, the Church's worship. And this is how you find in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, I said a number of the early Church Fathers who use the Apocalypse to open up the mysteries that are present, invisibly but truly present, in every Mass, just as they use the Mass to kind of interpret the mysteries of John's visions in the Book of Revelation. Okay, our guest today, for those of you who are joining us late, is Dr. Scott Hahn, a 1986 convert to Catholicism, a prolific author, and a professor of theology and scripture at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And Dr. Hahn is also the founder and director of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Okay, do, you know, Dr. Hahn, I guess this might be a good time to point out that you've got a lot of different books coming out, and uh, people can see what they all are by going to your website, scotthahn.com. And Han is spelled H-A-H-N. So go to scotthahn.com. Would that be right, Doctor? That would be, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Dennis, because, I mean, something I've been working on for seven years just came out last month, and that's the Catholic Bible Dictionary. Ordinary Catholics who want to study the Bible have never had a resource like this. The last one that was published came out over 50 years ago. And so I have just been working with a team of friends and colleagues to put together a really useful tool for highly motivated Catholics who want to begin reading the Bible or, you know, continue studying the Bible. And this is available uh, also from Doubleday. And they just did an incredible job, you know, a, a thousand pages, very clear type and uh, a beautiful cover and really sturdy binding as well. So you can have this for the rest of your life. And the feedback that I've gotten so far is just off the charts. I've been really thrilled to hear about the excitement of Catholics who are picking up the Catholic Bible Dictionary and using it. 
Okay, uh, Dr. Hahn, at your website, scotthahn.com, and once again, folks, Hahn is spelled H-A-H-N. At your website, Dr. Hahn, scotthahn.com, you've got some really great links there to really good, solid Catholic websites, and one that I went to as a result of hearing about your website is the one cuf.org. That's C as in Catholic, U as in United, F as in Faith. So the name of the organization is Catholics United for the Faith, but I'm going to be a regular visitor, visitor to that website also. But I also want to encourage the audience to check out your website, scotthahn.com, to see what books the, you've written in the past that are, you're offering now, and also to go uh, check out the links that, you're, uh, that you have there for people to go to also. Yeah, I appreciate that, Dennis, because uh, CUF is a great organization. I've worked with them now for nearly 20 years. They're the ones who established Emmaus Road Publishing. I, I was the one who kind of helped found that about 11 or 12 years ago, and I'm just thrilled and proud to be continuing to collaborate with Catholics United for the Faith and the other organizations, too, that you will find. And since you mentioned I should also uh, tell our listeners that Kinship by Covenant, another book that I've been working on for many years, in this case I began writing it as a doctoral thesis way back in 1989, that also just came out about a month ago. I've, I've revised it and rewritten and tried to make it a little more understandable for the highly motivated Catholic. But this is sort of like my testimony to St. Paul and how he made me a Catholic by showing me how to really read the Old Testament in light of the New and the New Testament in light of the Old. And uh, I'm excited because it's all about how the covenant is not a contract but a family. And God, our Father, has been using this covenant to make us one worldwide family, and that's exactly what the Catholic Church represents, the fulfillment of God's fatherly plan. So Kinship by Covenant, for more advanced and motivated readers, is also available uh, from Amazon, from Yale University Press, as well as from scotthahn.com. Okay, uh, Dr. Hahn, uh, I'm going to change up the way I uh, tell people who uh, are just joining the show late who you are. I think most of us know you from your uh, shows on EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just say that our guest today is Dr. Scott Hahn, among other things, a uh, frequent host of shows, along, I might add, also with a, a guest on our show, Mike Aquilina, and uh, on Eternal Word Television Network. Now, uh, Dr. Hahn, uh, before I... I'm going to get into another question now, but before I, and I'm going to do this before I go into some other books you've written. I got a question for you dealing with the rapture. So I guess my point is this. What is the rapture? Why do some Protestants, not all, but some Protestants uh, accept the rapture? And why does the Catholic Church teach against it is my general question. But I want to bring a question that I found uh, dealing with the rapture at Catholics United for the Faith, and it's the following. Revelation 20 speaks of Satan being bound in Christ reigning with his saints for a thousand years, a millennium. Many Protestants understand this 1,000-year reign literally and believe that it will occur on earth in the future. They, they also cite 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and try to make an historical connection between something called the rapture when Christians are, quote, taken up, and this millennium. What does the church teach regarding millennialism and the rapture we could spend hours discussing this we only have a few minutes and so let me just summarize it three points uh, first historic protestantism did not embrace the rapture theory most people assume that they did but as a former presbyterian minister i can assure you they didn't this theory really only emerged with the rise of fundamentalism at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s through the schofield reference bible and some other tools and uh, the rapture theory is just this, that uh, 
Christ is going to come and take all Gentile believers up to the clouds and then come to earth and establish a thousand-year military kind of imperial kingdom with the Jews. And uh, historic Protestantism has rejected this. But because so many of the most vocal fundamentalists on TV, on the radio, and in the other media, such as the Internet, have advanced this view with a great deal of energy and aggressiveness, it has become sort of front and center stage for many people. Uh, but I think the first point is the most important point, is that this is a deviation from historic Christianity the way Protestants have understood it as much as Catholics. The second thing I would say is this. When it comes to the millennium, Protestants have been divided over this issue now for many centuries. And you have divisions that are not only represented in different denominations, but different seminaries and Bible colleges. And we can't get into all of the different theories, but in the Catholic tradition, the notion that the millennium is a literal 1,000-year empire has been rejected you know, through the, through the centuries, but most especially in the 20th century by the magisterium. The Pope established the Pontifical Biblical Commission to make these kinds of judgments, and the commission back in the 1920s issued a, a teaching that basically said that when we read Revelation 20, what we're talking about here is not a literal 1,000-year empire that Christ will establish with the Jews, that that is a, a misreading. And again, historically, most Protestants would have agreed with that judgment reached by the Church. And so the Church has always sort of eschewed, it's steered away from, it's warned against what is called millenarianism, millennialism, or chiliasm. And that is a literalistic reading of the thousand-year kingdom in Revelation 20. The third thing I want to say is that having established the boundary lines, the Catholic Church doesn't dictate one interpretation over these other seven or eight options. There are a lot of viable options as to how readers can understand the meaning of the millennium in Revelation 20 and a lot of the other images that are found in the book of Revelation. And the fathers guide us, and you also have many contemporary scholars who help us, but there's a great deal of freedom. Once the boundary lines are established, it's like in baseball. Once you know what's fair and foul, swing away. And so Catholics have a great deal of freedom as the children of God and the family of God to read the book of Revelation and to apply it in different ways as long as they stay within those boundaries. Okay, our guest today is Dr. Scott Hahn of Eternal Word Television Network. Now, uh, Dr. Hahn, you... Uh, I was telling people that you have a great website, scotthahn.com, wherein they can go and find out all the books you offer for sale there. And Han is spelled H-A-H-N. You've also got some great links to other real solid Catholic websites also. I might mention that I think the best website of all is the website that we have for the St. Paul Center. That's salvationhistory.com. We have literally hundreds of pages of free Bible study resources for beginners, for intermediate for advanced. We have also a schedule of all of the places where I will go to speak. We have podcasts, we have library resources, free studies, and a team of, uh, of Bible teachers, second to none. And I have been working with them since we founded it back in 2002. And I got to tell you, the St. Paul Center website was good before, but within the last few months, I mean, the good just got a whole lot better. SalvationHistory.com has has really received a lot of accolades from people who say it might be the finest website on the Internet for Catholics wanting to go deeper into the Bible. 
Okay, Dr. Uh, Scott Hahn, i got to tell you, I'm really proud of myself. Usually when I do an interview like this, I have about eight hours extra material, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm getting better, so I condensed it down to where I only have about two hours more material for you, but we only have a few minutes left. But in any event, uh, I just want to say that out of the books that you've got at your website listed there, uh, there's an awful lot of them there that I'm going to have to get and read, but one of them kind of caught my eye. I was a little surprised. The one titled Ordinary Work, Extraordinary Grace is subtitled by you, My Spiritual Journey in Opus Dei. I didn't know you were a member of Opus Dei, and if you, uh, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I was a cooperator in Opus Dei before I was a Catholic, and so I was receiving spiritual direction from some really fine Opus Dei priests in Pittsburgh and in Milwaukee as I was on the journey to becoming a Catholic, and I just found they were really rooted in Scripture, very Christ-centered, very sacramental, just at the, at the, at the core, at the heart of the Church. And uh, I became uh, a Catholic back in 1986, a cooperator in 85, and since that time I've received spiritual direction from some of the best priests, and uh, I, I, can't, I can't say enough about my experience in Opus Dei. I wrote this book back at the time of the Da Vinci Code because of how they targeted and really slandered Opus Dei. And I thought, you know, Opus Dei deserves to be defended. And I thought about it some more. You know, I thought the Da Vinci Code is a fad. It will come, a, come and go. Fad stands for for a day. And after the movie, it was just for a day. But I wanted to, to, to respond in a constructive and positive way. And so I wrote this book that really summarizes the life and teachings of St. Jose Maria, and my experience and many other men and women as they have come to really uh, discover the power of the Catholic faith through the, uh, the great uh, prelature that we call Opus Dei, the work of God. Okay, uh, our guest today has been Dr. Scott Hahn, uh, regular host on Eternal Word Television Network. Uh, that's Mother Angelica's uh, network, and also prolific author, and uh, also a 1986 convert to Catholicism, and a professor of theology and scripture at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And Dr. Hahn is also the founder and director of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And I want to remind everybody uh, to please go out and get the two books we went over with Dr. Hahn today. The first one being Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time, published by Emmaus Road. And the other one is titled Ignatius Study Bible, The Letters of John and Revelation. And, uh, but anyway, you can go to Dr. Hahn's website, which is scotthahn.com, and Hahn is spelled H-A-H-N, and you'll find everything uh, we've mentioned here today and more listed there, along with some great links to Catholic uh, websites. Dr. Scott Hahn, thanks very much for being our guest on South Florida Lay Catholic Radio. And as I said before, I'm your host, Dennis O'Donovan. Thanks very much for being with us today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Doctor. Take care, Dennis.